Exodus chapter 15 is where we're going to be. It's full-blown allergy season, so we'll pray my, uh, my voice holds up today. Exodus chapter 15, we're going to pick up on the aftermath of the biggest event in the entire Old Testament. If you were here last week, you know we looked at the crossing of the Red Sea and how uh, the, the Passover, the crossing of the Red Sea, and, and, and uh, all that that entailed, and we got from Exodus to, to Easter, we saw all of that last week, and how uh, the, the crossing, the, the full event, Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea, is the most important event in the Old Testament, and really pushes us forward to the, the New Testament, where we see the, the, the same kind of imagery, but fulfilled in a greater way whenever Christ died on the cross and then was resurrected three days later. That's what we looked at last week. And today we're going to look at the aftermath of that and see what that can teach us as well. What, what it is that Moses does, the, 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 the moment that the waters are closed up and, and everything has swallowed the Egyptians, what happens after that will tell us a lot about what our response should be in the aftermath of Easter from last week. There are certain things about being a parent that can catch you by surprise. You guys that are parents know this to be true. Before you have kids, you think you have an idea of kind of the, what your kids are going to be, how you're going to parent, what they're going to be, how they're going to act like, all those kind of things. You think you have an idea, but the reality is, uh, and parents, you can give the amen right here, you have no idea what your kids are going to be like. Absolutely no clue. Um, for, for instance... Uh, I assumed that my kids, obviously I didn't know all their personalities, what they were going to look like, any of that kind of stuff, but I just assumed they would probably be pretty competitive kids because I was a super competitive kid. Uh, They're really not. And that's good in some ways, and then when you're their coach, it's not so good. So that's how those things kind of work out for you sometimes. But when I was a kid... I was as competitive as you can be. I've talked about this in, uh, with a handful of you guys, and I, I think this maybe is a generational thing, but uh, some of these kids are, are competitive, but a lot, it just doesn't transfer quite the, the same way. But when I was a kid, it didn't matter what it was, I was going to turn it into a competition. I don't care what we were doing. I don't care if we were walking into Walmart. I was going to beat you to the front door. I don't care if we were playing something in the backyard. I was going to twist that to where it would be a game that I could win. I never understood kids that played in the sandbox. That made no sense to me whatsoever. You just sit and you move sand around. There's no objective to that. There's no way to win at that game. That was just boring to me. I didn't need the sandbox. I just didn't understand stand that at all. Anything would be a competition. If I was at the ball field, all I needed was a piece of aluminum foil, and then we could find a, figure, find a way to make bases, and we would play handball behind the, the, the bleachers. That's what we did. It was always about competition. I loved to compete. It was really what my world revolved around until really till I, about I got in college. It was just in my bones somehow. I loved to compete. And what that meant is that whenever I became a Christian in eighth grade, then immediately what I wanted to know is what God had to do with me as a competitor. I wanted to know how does that work itself out. And unfortunately, my approach was not like, let me find out who God is, and then I'll, I'll adjust my competitiveness around him. My approach was, I'm a competitor. I play baseball. I do these things. I need 
I need God to help me be better at that. That's what God does, right? He makes me a, more, a better, more improved version of myself. And so I loved verses like Nehemiah 4.20 that would talk about how God would fight for us. And the verses that would make it on the bottom of my baseball cap. We got any baseball players in here? So if, if you're a baseball player, you know that, that the bottom of the baseball cap is sacred real estate, right? What goes on the bottom of the, of the, of the baseball cap is, is sacred. And so what would make it under there the verses that motivated you? or your girlfriend's name, or whatever. That would go right on the bottom of that, that, that ball cap. That was, you chose carefully what went there. And so, of course, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That would make it there. Context is irrelevant. That would go on my baseball cap because, after all, I needed to be able to do all things, like hit home runs and do things like that. So, or Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, and they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not be faint. And I needed that because I was probably out of shape. And I needed something that would help me to be able to run and not grow weary. So those type of things would make it on the bottom of my baseball cap. That's what I needed. They were, they were great verses for me because, after all, they would be like a good luck charm that would make me a better Player. You see, I wanted a God that was like me, just better. I wanted a God that I could understand that was, was, was very similar to who I was, just a better version of me. And that if I became more like him, that would just mean that I would become a better version of myself. And this is the approach that so many Christians take to God today. We assume he is like us, and the more that we strive to be like him the better version of us we will be. Unfortunately, that's not at all how Scripture looks at the nature and the character of God. And this morning we're going to take a look at the, the celebration after Israel crosses the Red Sea, and we're going to see what this teaches us about the nature of God and how He's really nothing like us, and how that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. We're going to look here at the Song of Moses. We sang this morning the Song of Moses. It's based straight off of this text and put into to words that we can sing today. But we're going to read the Song of Moses here as he celebrates. And I'm just going to read this whole thing here. It's going to take just a minute to get through. But it's just going to recount what has just happened with the Red Sea. And it's going to teach us about who God is. So I'm going to read through this. And then we're going to go back and we're going to, we're going to look at different pieces of it uh, and pick it apart a bit. So Exodus chapter 15 Verse 1, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider has thrown, he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them, and they went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. 
My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, and my hand shall destroy them. And you blew your wind, and the sea covered them, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. You have led, your stead, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed, and you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of, your greatness, because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the, horse, for when the horses of Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. And then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand. And all the women went out after her with the tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So this is the song of Moses. What a song it is. What a song it is. Powerful in what it communicates and what it tells us. Such rich language. But before we get into the language and start picking it, picking it apart a, a little bit, we need to briefly consider why this comes up here at all. This is a common thing that you see in Scripture. God shows up, He intervenes on behalf of His people, and His people respond by praising Him in song. We see this over and over. It's a natural way to express the emotion of the moment. It's a natural way to communicate what's going on inside of you to be able to sing that. I thought about spending the whole morning on this point. I'm not going to spend the whole morning on this point, but there's some stuff that I, I do want to draw out of why this song pops up here. What drives Israel to worship here? Why do we have this song recorded for us? Why would they do this? What makes them sing this song? Because the thing is, whenever they showed up on the, the shore on the other side of the Red Sea, it really wasn't like the way we show up at church on Sunday mornings in order for us to worship. And for the sake of what we're talking about this morning, when I'm talking about worship, I'm going to be talking about music. That is a very narrow definition of worship that I don't normally endorse. But for simplicity's sake, I'm just going to be talking about music a little bit here as we go through this. But they didn't show up at church that morning wondering who was going to be singing the songs because they really needed the right singer to be in front of them so that they could really be into it that morning. They didn't wonder if it was one of the old songs that they had sung uh, long ago back whenever... Um, Back whenever their forefathers were around, they didn't wonder if it was one of these old songs. They, they didn't wonder if they were going to have to learn the words to a new song. They weren't worried if it was a fast song or if it was a slow song or if people were raising their hands or if people were not. They weren't hoping the song would, would get, them, get them to really be feeling it for the morning. They weren't worried if the song was going to get them hyped up. 
They weren't worried that the song might build just the right way in the bridge so they would start swaying or they'd start clapping or their hands would go up. They really weren't worried about that when they showed up on the shore that day. Those were not the things that were entering their mind whenever they said it's time to worship. They weren't concerned with the age of the song, the style of the song, how new or how old the words were, how fast or how slow they were, how good, how it built, how it didn't, whether there was a drum or whether there was an electric guitar, whether there was a piano or whether it was a cappella. They weren't worried about those things. They were singing that song out of an overflow of two primary things, who God was and what he had done on their behalf. Who God was and what he had done on their behalf. Moses didn't, didn't compose this song and put forth this song in order to raise the emotion or create the emotion of the moment. The song is here to express the truth of what they had just experienced through God's work. Of how they had just come to know God in a truer, deeper way. They had just come to know him better because they had crossed the Red Sea. This morning, what I want to communicate to you is that worship is not primarily about a feeling or an emotion. I'm going to say this again. Worship is not primarily about a feeling, nor is it about our feelings. And here's what I mean. If we show up and we sing songs like we did today, and these are emotional songs that we sang today. These are songs that make you, make you want to want to whoop and holler just a little bit, and that's totally fine. We'll talk about that here in just a minute. But if we walk up here this morning, and, and, and we do some of these songs, songs that have a little bit of a beat, they have some power, they have some, some umph, and you walk out of here saying how great worship was because you got hyped up this morning, then you've missed the point of worship. You have taken an event an action, and this is how clever Satan is and how slick he is. You have taken an event or an action that is intended to be solely about the nature and the person of God, and you have turned it to be about yourself. You have taken it and you have said, this thing that is about you, God, I like because of how it makes me feel. Because of the emotion it created within me. Worship through song is never meant to be about us and how we feel about it. It is meant to aid us in singing our adoration and confessing our sin and celebrating our Savior and expressing our lament. It's meant to aid all of those things. But all that in response to what we know about God and what He has done on our behalf. The song, whether it is old or new, its primary job is a tool for worship by drawing us to know and to express what we already know about God. Sometimes when people say they like old hymns, that's why they like old hymns. And sometimes it's because those old hymns are nostalgic and they're familiar with them, and they can get more emotional singing the old hymns. So this is not an old hymn, new song debate that I'm talking about here. Because sometimes, whenever you sing the new songs, it's because you like the fresh language, and you can confess these truths inside of you in a, in a, in a fresher, in a newer way. And sometimes you like the new songs because they just get you hype, because they get you fired up, because the beat's great. So I'm not talking about hymns versus old, new songs versus old, hymns versus choruses or whatever. 
The worship wars tore apart churches in the 90s. But this is not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is the purpose in worship and why we sing. We sing to confess and to know God better. And you can do that with an old song, and you can do that with a new song. But just because a song makes you feel good, him or new, either one, old or new, just because a song makes you feel good does not mean that the Holy Spirit has shown up. When God is praised, whether you feel that emotional, whether you feel emotional or not, that's when you know the Holy Spirit has shown up. So just because your hand goes up, just because your feet start stomping a little bit, or just because a familiar tune strikes up that you know from your childhood, neither one of those things means the Holy Spirit has shown up and is, is, is active in that praise, in that moment. But when God is praised, when he is confessed, when sin is confessed, when lament over sin is expressed, then you know the Holy Spirit has shown up. Now with all that being said about emotion and how that is not what drives and primarily the definition of worship, you better believe Moses and the Israelites were emotional when they sang those, this song. They got out the tambourines for crying out loud. That's how you know it's a worship service, right? When the tambourines show up. They got the tambourines out. They were emotional. This is why I say it's not primarily about emotion. But make no mistake, worship should be emotional. If you have any inkling of what you were singing about, the glory and the transcendence of a God that would choose you and then work in his strength on behalf of you and his people, if you have any inkling about how amazing that is, it should rock our emotions. So no, I don't think our worship is primarily about our emotions. But I don't think for a second that worship should not be emotional. And I'll move from this point, and I am far from exhausted all the things we could talk about here. I fully expect that we'll talk and continue this conversation some more, perhaps over coffee, perhaps over email, or perhaps another Sunday morning. I don't know. But this is not... The reason I bring this up is to make the point that whatever we do with worship, it is not about us. It is about God. It is about Him, knowing Him, and expressing that in some way. And so I'll move on. So let's dial in now and let's look at some of these words that Moses has for us. Let's dial, <clears throat> let's dial in on stanza one. He says, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. And then verse 3. Whew, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. My sophomore self is wishing I knew that verse to put on the bottom of my baseball cap. That, if we ever do a men's conference, we've got our theme verse right there. Right, guys? That's it. The Lord is a man of war. But here's the thing. This is the type of verse that people can latch on to. This is a verse that will preach, man. 
you can't preach the Lord is a man of war, then you're not going to be preaching at a men's conference anyway. So the, this type of verse is one that people can really grab onto. It can show up on a, on, on a camo backpack and on a bumper sticker for sure, right next to the NRA bumper sticker. It's one that's been used throughout history to justify all sorts of warfare and conquest. But this verse is not meant to be a justification text for everybody that wants to carry a gun. This verse is about God. Now, some of you, when you hear this language, you're like, yes, there it is. I like it. That's a great verse right there. Yes, you love that kind of language. Others of you are like, I don't like that kind of language at all. This is not the kind of God I like talking about. I, I, like, I like the God that loves people. I don't want to hear about the God of war. It and all war bad things. You're not, we're, our modern ears certainly aren't used to hearing God described in this kind of language. And this gets back to where I started this morning. Too often we want to create a God in our image instead of letting Scripture craft that image for us. We should not diminish or dismiss or redefine this verse in any way. It says that the Lord is a man of war. So many people are convinced that when they die, they'll come face to face with Jesus. And they'll come face to face with a Jesus that is nothing more than a hippie in a white robe with feathered bangs, and nobody's afraid of that guy. Nobody. But that's just really bad family Bible artwork. That's not Jesus. God is a man of war, and he will go to war for one thing primarily, to make his name great. And when he goes to war, he will come back victorious. We said this a few weeks ago. God is undefeated. And this is what the entire next stanza is all about. Verses 4 through 10, Moses recounts what he's just witnessed. as The, the sea has just been parted by the blast of his nostrils, it says. And then with the wave of his hand, the waves come crashing down. And the most powerful army in the world is obliterated. God didn't do this because he was some nice guy. He didn't do this because he was some grandpa in his rocking chair loving his grandkids. God did this because he was a man of war. For far too long, we've let God come across as this benevolent, mamby-pamby grandpa that wouldn't hurt a fly. But that is not God. God is jealous for his name, and he will make sure that it is glorified. We need nothing more than the ten plagues that we have just studied to confirm that. For us. You go to verse 11 and 12, and we finally get the answer that Pharaoh asked all the way back in Exodus 5 or 6, wherever it was. We go all the way back, and, and we finally get the, the, the answer to the question. Do you remember Pharaoh's question? Who is Yahweh that I should obey him? And the answer is, he is the one that is majestic in holiness, glorious in his deeds. He does wonders from his people. And he stretches out his hand, and in an instant, the Egyptian army is swallowed whole. That is who Yahweh is. You see that verse 11 and 12? Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your hand, and the earth swallowed them. You go to the third stanza, verse 14. It talks about how this defeat of Egypt has made Israel famous. 
More so than that, it made, it's made God's name renowned among the nations. They know what God has done. And these other nations want no part of him. They fear God because they know he is a man of war. It talks about how, how they would walk by these other nations and they would be still as a stone. Almost like, oh, there goes the Israelites. Those are the ones that have Yahweh. Just act like you're not here. Like you just stand there. Like just, just pretend you're a tree. And maybe they'll walk right by you, right? This is what they do. They don't want anything to do with him because God has made his name great. And honestly, I'd like to end my sermon right here. Say, say, say just go out today knowing that your God is a man of war. He is your warrior. There's no fight you can't win. There's no battle you need to back down from. Fight against persecution. Fight against the culture. Be a culture warrior. Go out there. Men, be warriors. Ah, That's what I would love to do. But the problem is this text is not about you being a warrior at all. And there's an even bigger problem with this, and it's the one that that begs to be answered. So turn with me over to Matthew chapter 5. Go to the New Testament with me. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. This is Jesus talking. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This doesn't sound like a warrior at all. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Wait, hang on. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. Doesn't sound like a man of war. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Doesn't say go fight when you're persecuted for for righteousness' sake. Blessed are those when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account because you are going to go and win the battle. Not what it says. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Doesn't sound anything like a man of war to me. What do we do with this? God is a man of war. The Lord is a man of war. And then Jesus shows up who, according to Hebrews 1, is the exact imprint of God's nature. Shouldn't he be a man of war too? His disciples thought he was going to be. If you read throughout the the Gospels, his disciples thought he came to start a revolution. And they were ready to fight. That's why a lot of them started following him in the first place. They They were looking for a fight. And they thought Jesus was the one to pick it. When Jesus gets arrested, do you remember what happens? Jesus comes up, he's taken into handcuffs. After Judas betrays him, kisses him on the cheek, he's taken into, into, uh, into chains. And Peter pulls out a sword, cuts off a soldier's, a soldier's ear, right? Peter's thinking, now's the time. 
I knew Jesus was a man of war. If he's going to fight, this is where we fight back. I'm ready to fight. Let's go. And then what does Jesus do? He tells Peter, put away your sword. Puts the guy's ear back on his head. And he says, we're not going to fight right now. Peter's like, if not now, when? And effectively, Jesus says, never. So what do we make of this? Is he a man of war or is he a butterfly-loving coward? Which one is he? Is he a warrior or is he a wimp? Make no mistake about it, Jesus is a warrior. But it's his interaction with Pilate that should give us a clue as to what kind of warrior he is. John chapter 18, verse 33. Jesus has been arrested. He's been beaten. He's bloodied. He knows his life's about over. He comes before Pilate. John chapter 18, verse 33. says, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. You see, Jesus is a warrior. Jesus is a warrior, but he didn't come to fight a battle here primarily. He didn't come to win a battle here or to start a revolution here. He had something much, much bigger in mind. You see, Jesus is fighting a battle for us, but it isn't on this earth and it isn't against an enemy that we can see. Paul tells us that our battle is not with flesh and blood, but it is a spiritual battle. But we can be certain that this is a battle in which Jesus is indeed a man of war. Theologians call this aspect of what Christ has done for us Christus Victor. We've looked at this a few times over the years here at Providence. He is our champion. He is our victor. When Exodus tells us that God is a man of war, it's because he is fighting a battle on our behalf to make his name great. So did Jesus. Paul says it this way in Colossians chapter 2. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The picture that we see here, the picture that Paul lays out for us, whenever it says that he put them to open shame, I want you to picture a, 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 the, the, the streets of, of New York City. Cameras all around. Skyscrapers up above you. Ticker tape falling down all around. Christ striding through right down the street. And behind him, he's pulling Satan behind him. 
humiliated, defeated, embarrassed, shamed at how Christ has defeated him when he rose from the grave. That's the picture here of an enemy that has been absolutely destroyed. An enemy that has been put to open shame. Jesus is a man of war. And the war that he has won is just what we sang about today. To take back the keys of hell and death and the triumph over Satan in victory. I told you last week, if you were here, that every Sunday is Easter Sunday for us. Because it all comes back to that moment. In the Old Testament, it all came back to the Red Sea. And now for us, it all comes back to the cross and the resurrection. And we can say Jesus is a man of war, just like it says Yahweh is a man of war. And we can say it with no embarrassment, no shame, no thought of, oh, well, that's just how they talked thousands of years ago. We don't talk that way now. Jesus is a kinder, gentler Jesus. No, he is not. He fought a battle on our behalf that we could never win. And he won it. And now we get to sing songs in response to that. We get to sing in the overflow of who God is and what he's done for us. That gets to flow out from us and we get to say that we have Jesus as our Christus Victor. Our man of war that we celebrate. And we don't walk out of this place like Chana said, strutting, arrogant, because we've won a battle. We didn't win anything. Our general fought that battle for us. And we hid back in the corner and said, you go get him, Jesus. And he won. And that's the only way that it was going to work. Because if we tried to win that battle, we could never do it. And so our faith, our confidence is in Christ who did what we could never do. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we sing and we worship as confident people. Not confident in our own works, we have no confidence in our flesh. Not confident in what we've sung or how emotional we get when we sing because our emotions are fickle. We can be manipulated with a few chord changes. We sing and we worship because you are worthy of it. And because you have secured for us a victory and you have fought for us a battle. And you are the risen king. Victorious even in death. May we worship you as such. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.